just so you'll know that. We're not going to read the text now because I want to read it in its context. I want to share the context first. But I'm asking, we're standing because we just, when I do read the scriptures and such, that we, we just want to say that we have honored the reading of the Word of God. Amen? And, and then the, and the preaching and the exhortation. I want to preach to you today from this thought today. Sifted like wheat, or as wheat. Sifted as wheat, is what the scripture says. And so we're going to ask the Lord to elaborate and illuminate that for us today. How many believe He will today? So let's pray. Father, I love you. I feel honored to be here. God, to stand amongst the church family and worship. Come on, somebody. To stand amongst the church family and to offer a sacrifice of praise. We didn't bring stone and, Father, erect an altar. And, there, Father God, we didn't have the blood flowing of animals and the flaying of skinned animals, God. But we, what we have today is a sacrifice of praise, and we've offered it. And I pray that you've received it. And now, even now, that because you received our praise and our our, our, our hearts being poured out to you, that, that you'll visit us with your presence over the Word of God. You'll reveal to us your will through the Word of God. You'll open our eyes to see, our ears to hear. God, with a heart, will understand. Visitors among us would be blessed. Adherents that have been a part of our church for a long time would be blessed, and members equally as well, that each one of us, God, that we would have a spirit like Mary, God, we would sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his Word. That, Father, through the preaching of the Word today, it would be beyond the teaching and the abilities of a pastor. It would be, it would be the words of Christ contained within His words today, God. So I pray that, as I've said often, maybe someone can hear the Lord's voice and my voice today. That's my prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen and Amen. I want to take you into this chapter. We're going to be in verses 31 and 32 here in a moment of the 22nd chapter of the book of Luke. And I'm truly asking the Lord to help me to share the things that he, I believe, has laid on my heart. I think, they have, I think they're very relevant today. And I want to take you into the context of it here before we even get to it for just a moment. Before we get into actually that passage that's on the screen in front of you, I want to give you the context if I can. This is the night of Jesus's betrayal and arrest if ever there was a night that we can say was the heaviest of all during his earthly lifetime and ministry this is the night what we have to do what we as worshipers here today as students of the word of God as we begin to go into this word what we have to do is we have to try to identify with the feeling that is happening at that moment the very best we can, we have to, we have to push ourselves and pull, and we have to, we have to try to understand the, the context. We can't just look at what takes place in the upper room where Jesus is having and sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. We have to try to see the bigger picture that the city of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem has been filled with worshipers at this time. Worshippers because Passover is at hand. Passover is one of the three Jewish feasts that required all males, no matter whether you, wherever, wherever you were, to, to travel with your family to Jerusalem to worship. Obviously not all did, but many, many, many thousands did. Made this, it was a pilgrimage. Oftentimes there was great excitement with it. But at the same time, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a conflicted emotional response to the moment that is happening. Obviously, they're, they're, they're grateful to share in the remembrance of Passover. 
But I'm telling you, messianic expectations are at a fevered pitch at this particular time. The ministry of Jesus has just turned the nation upside down for three years. And it's really coming to a point during this final week. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem a few days earlier had set the city on edge. Thousands and thousands had gathered with him, laying palm branches. It was very messianic. It was, it was an expectation. It had been prophesied in the scriptures in the book of Zechariah. And, and so now in the people's minds, could this, could this lonely figure be the one that they had anticipated for so long? But then at the same time, the city also feels feels the heaviness of the iron fist of Rome constantly. And anytime the city is volatile like that, anytime there is a, there is a movement within Judaism, it puts the Roman guard on watch. Because I'm telling you, it's like right now, how many of you know that if you drove down the, 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 the road today and you cast out, uh, I, I don't want to say, uh, uh, let's just say a, a flame, something flaming, we'll just say that, and it landed in any field, it is so dry that it would could be it, it could just be volatile real quickly. I mean, combustible. It would just it it could just take over so quick. Well, that's the way it was at that moment. And Jesus' teaching was inciting. It was inciting to a degree in the minds of some a, a measure of an insurrection. He had taught things that week that had just infuriated the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, and they believed that if they couldn't contain him. His teachings were going to explode in the city, and if it did, then it was going to cause the iron fist of Rome to come down upon them. And so the religious leaders are plotting behind the scenes. They have got to take this man. They've got to get him out. But if they don't get him out in private, if they do it in public, a riot's going to occur. And it's going to go, I mean, again, you're just trying, I want you to see that all that is in the air. I mean, it's not, the writers don't tell us this, but in this context, but, it, but it's there. It's, it's mentioned in many of the writings. Jesus has shared the Passover meal with his disciples. And so Judas of Iscariot has negotiated with the chief priest to betray him at, uh, in the absence of the multitude. And, and during this setting here in Luke chapter number 22, Jesus has shared the revelation of the betrayal of Judas. He's even said as they were breaking the bread, he said, one of you among us is going to betray me. And he hands Judas the sop. Satan enters into him and he, he heads out quickly. And, and in this context, though, we also can see the shepherd heart of Jesus. We just sang a song, I've got a good shepherd. Do you have a good shepherd today? I do. And to the very end, he is loving his, his disciples, and he's teaching them, and he's instructing them and, uh, of the kingdom of God. He's warning his disciples. He's also promising them a kingdom. He's promising them that they're going to sit on the 12. So these words right here that he uses, that you're going to sit on the 12 tribes or sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, those are messianic expectations. So, in their minds, they are just really being convinced again that they have put their heart and their trust in this 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 man Jesus, who is the the, the son of David. And their 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 messianic expectations are just bubbling up. And in the midst of that atmosphere, in the midst of Passover and celebration and all of that, and Judas has left the room, and Jesus has has um, taught his disciples. He then turns. And his eyes focus on one individual. And that's the text on the screen in front of you. 
And he looks directly at Simon, Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, he says. Behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So Jesus, by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, discerns not that night previously, at some point in time in his private devotions, Jesus begins to discern that Satan has, has a scheme against Simon and has chosen him amongst the other 11, perhaps above all others, to sift him as wheat. Now, before we even get further into this particular moment with Simon, we have to even ask ourselves this question. Do, do you believe in a satanic scheme? I do. I do believe. Now, I know there's a broader picture, and I know there's devil and demons and Satan and principalities and powers, and, but unseen forces that are at work. That, that, that the enemy, Paul said later, that we are not uh, ignorant of Satan's devices. And so it seems to us that that the adversary has a scheme, and he's plotting against, uh, against Peter. He will work uh, against people personally. He will work, and he will scheme against people religiously. He will work against people politically. If I remember what it said in the book of Job, that the, the, Satan goes to and fro in all the earth, searching and, and scheming and plotting. With Judas, he had found a stronghold. In his love for money. John said Judas was a thief. But with Simon, it seems as if, this is my perception, Satan believes he's found a stronghold. A means to sift him. I'll explain that moment, or what that means in a moment. Perhaps a, a, a scheme and a deception that will cause Peter to not only deny any knowledge of Jesus, but also perhaps to even abandon all faith that he possesses. But isn't that, I want to ask you that, isn't that really what the intent of a satanic deception is and a plot against your life? Isn't it to disrupt our faith and our commitment to Christ? You know what we've arrived at in America? Somehow we believe, the, the American Christian believes, that the enemy is concerned with your convenience and comfort. And he's plotted against your convenience and comfort. And that's why when you can't find the remote, you're like, Satan, get thee behind me in Jesus' name. God, give me a discerning word so I can find and locate this. That's where we're at. I'm say, I just want you to know today, Satan does not care anything at all about your convenience and comfort. He's, he's, his, his plot is, is, is against your commitment to Christ and his call upon your life. His intent, that's the intent of the wiles of the devil. And so Peter is both warned in verse number 31, but he's also affirmed in verse number 32 that we're going to get to in just a few moments, in just a little while. But now Peter has a response, and Peter's an interesting character, isn't he? We've all journeyed in our studies in the Gospels because we can, to a degree, identify with Peter because oftentimes he's boisterous. Oftentimes, to a degree, he's a little bit arrogant. He sometimes says some things that he later regrets. I'm not talking about anybody you know, similar here, probably. In the words of Pastor Andre, it's probably in other churches, but not in our church you know, from there. And, and so we can identify with Peter, but I want you to see for a moment. So when, when Peter hears these words that Satan has desired to have you, 
Peter has an immediate, almost an expected response. He looks right at Jesus and he says, Jesus, he said, I'm willing right now. He said, I will go. As a matter of fact, in a few moments, uh, perhaps even unbeknownst to Jesus at that moment, Peter reaches in the back, just like some folks among us are carrying. Peter's carrying. And he pulls out. He's one of the two Perhaps both swords. He may be carrying both swords. We just know that, some, that there are two swords produced. We don't know it was two disciples that produced them. He may have had both right here behind him. And he tells Jesus, it's expected. He said, I'm ready to go with you to prison, and I'll even fight to the very end. And if it, why is that? Why, what's because let me tell you what, Jesus, I want you to put this in the context if we can. Let's make a contrast for a moment. It will help us understand. Messianic expectations were that, that Jesus was the son of David. And this David saw the favor of God and the expansion of the kingdom like no other king. All kings were subsequently measured against David. And Jesus is the son of David. And the messianic expectation is he's going to rule and reign. And he's going to rid the nation of Roman occupation. It's all throughout the Gospels. We have to keep this in the mind. And so when you read about Jesus choosing three, he chose Peter, James, and John. We call those his inner three, correct? The three closest disciples. You'll see him later in the very night choosing them to go with him and pray in Gethsemane. We'll go back to David. David had a host of mighty men. He had a lot of men that followed him, but he had 30 in particular that he's really close to. And of that 30, there were three. There were three that were, were his closest. And so Peter sees himself in that role. He sees himself as, as I am one of those. I am Abishai. I'm one of, the, uh, of, the, of, the, of a particular group of men that was aligned with David to help move the kingdom to David. And so Peter sees him messianically. And up until that time, he's just been casting out devils and, 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 and ministering and, and serving like that. But he's ready to go over. He's ready to push over. He's ready. You just, you just say the word, Lord, and it's all. We're going to trust God. We're going to believe that, you know, the psalmist David said, by my God, I can run through a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. And so there was an expectation that if God was on your side and you're fighting on God's behalf, nobody could stand in front of you. And he may have been just a common fisherman, but no, deep inside of him, he believed over the last three years, he had walked away from his nets. And he had joined an army, a revolution. Are y'all out there today? And, and he's just ready. He said, I'm ready. I'll go with you to prison and to death. Jesus prophetically revealed Peter's response to the sifting of Satan. That's what he's saying. That's what he's claiming. You bring them on. Let's go. It's on. We're going to fight this thing. If they get me, they're gonna, it's going to be like Samson. They're going to have to send a whole army to get me out and take me into prison. But I'll go. That's his expect. Jesus said, I'll tell you, Simon. Let me tell you what's going to happen. He said, before the rooster will even crow. Before the sun will crest in the eastern sky, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. Yeah, it's easy right here in the presence of these other disciples after we just celebrated Passover and you've got the, you've got the cup and the covenant and all those things, but you're going to be thrust in an environment when the pressure is going to come so heavy upon you that before this Passover moon passes, and before the morning sun rises, and before the rooster even clears his throat to begin to crow, you're going to have denied me three times. Peter's, I mean, you know Peter, he's arrogant. <laughs> maybe these guys, maybe these clowns. Are y'all out there today? But not me. I'll follow you all the way, Jesus. So after he produces those two swords, 
Jesus leaves the upper room and he crosses the Kidron Valley. And he enters Gethsemane. Gethsemane has been there many times. Y'all know this. We've preached about it. Now remember, there's a, God wants us to see sifting is weak today. And I, I want to show you, I, wanna, I, I believe God has a prophetic word for you. But if we don't put ourselves into the heart of this story and weigh it in the heaviness that, that, that we can make, that we can identify with it, we have to see this. So while in Gethsemane, as we know, Jesus prays. Not, what is it, eight are outside the gate watching. Three have been taken further into the garden. Jesus is alone, a stone's throw, and there he's praying. But while he's in prayer, the enemy's plotting. How many of you know that's happened to me many times? Well, I've been walking and seeking and searching after God. The enemy's scheming. The enemy's plotting. And so when Jesus is going deeper in the garden to pray, Judas of Iscariot has 30 pieces of silver in a bag tucked in his cloak in which he had promised to betray the Son of God. Now, as he's coming, if you put this in his, you know, we all know he betrays Jesus with a kiss, correct? When you think about that for a moment, why would, why would it happen the way it did? It seems to me that the soldiers are probably a little bit behind Judas. Judas is going past the eight that are keeping the gate, past the three and find Jesus. But when he does so, listen to this, he's not got perhaps the band of soldiers right there with him because he doesn't want it to look like he's leading them to Jesus. It, he had been sent out of the upper room. The disciples thought he was going to maybe make an offering of some kind. They said he had the bag. Maybe he was going to do a benevolent work. And so what it's, it seems like the scheme was the soldiers would be just a little bit behind so that it, Jesus, he could slip in and kiss Jesus. Jesus would be caught unaware, and then they would jump out of the shadows, if you will, and then take Jesus. And you can read that however you want to. But in that moment now, just real quickly, in that moment, you got to see it's chaotic. It's chaotic quickly in that moment because here's Judas, and now suddenly there are other men, servants of the high priest, soldiers. There's swords, there's staves or spears, there's knives. I'm telling you, the power of Rome and the power of Judaism is coming to take this, this, this singular figure of Jesus. And in that moment, I'm telling you, that, remember that combustion, remember that moment, it, it's about to go down, and so they come, and when that happens, Peter can't stand it, and he jumps out of the shadows, this is his moment, he's been waiting for it, he is Abishai of old, he's going to defend Jesus with his life, and as he, as he just lets some brother get close to him, and he slashes, I'm telling you, you know what happens, he cuts the ear, the right ear off of the, uh, one of the servants of the uh, Malchus, the Bible tells us later in the book of John, by name, but I'm gonna tell you, he wasn't aiming for the ear. It wasn't a flesh wound he was after. He had fully vested himself into the messianic expectation that Jesus was the Messiah. And at that moment, he knows that if they will just draw their swords, God's gonna fight on their behalf. That has to be in the heart of Peter. And this is where the sifting begins. Because rather than Jesus rising up like Samson of old, how many remember Samson when they put him in cords or chains? Bible says he broke them like it was just, you know, just thread. He could snap. There, he is expecting them. If you could, st come on now, if you could calm the sea, if you could walk on water, 
If you could cast out devils, heal the sick, and raise the dead, you can shake off a few soldiers in the night. You can shake off a chief priest. But much to to Peter's amazement, Jesus does none of those things. And rather, he reproves Peter for his defense of Jesus. I'll tell you, it's in moments like that. I'll get to where I'm going here in just a moment. When Satan begins the sifting, the sifting. Jesus is apprehended, most likely bound. And he's escorted to Caiaphas, the high priest's house. And exactly as Jesus predicted, the disciples then scatter. If we, further, if we read the, far, the story farther, John is known to the high priest and, and, and to his household, and he's allowed to watch, to get given greater access. He then goes and vouches for Peter, and Peter seems to be attempting to be incognito. He's kind of trying to hide out. Got his cloak up, got his glasses on, though it's night. He's hiding out. He doesn't want people... I'm going to get to what's going. I believe is going in his heart and his mind. That sifting continues. Peter's allegiance to Jesus will be questioned here in just a short moment. I'm telling you, church family, Satan has desired to have us. That he may sift us as wheat. We've got to learn from this. I want you to go a little bit farther with me into this. So here in a moment, so as Peter makes his journey, he's questioned by some of the folks that are in the courtyard of the, of the high priest Caiaphas. The first one that questions him is the doorkeeper. But when he comes through, when, when, when Peter comes through, she's like, wait a minute. I've seen you. You've got, you got your overcoat on, and you got your glasses and your hat pulled low, and you're just trying to look like anybody else. No, you were with him. Are you out there today? There's something, let me, let me tell you, with, I, want, I, want, I want to show, who is Satan using to sift or to tempt Peter? I began to think about that. The people that were in Caiaphas' courtyard for a moment, let me tell you, they feel the volatility of the situation too. When you read about Jesus, you see him as the son of God. They saw him as an insurrectionist that put the safety of Jerusalem at risk. And so, when they see Peter coming in, and in their minds, he's part of them, they're thinking there's an insurrection going on. They, they, they probably heard about what took place in the garden. Information's traveling quick. And so they're, they're like, wait a minute. If this is one of them, if he comes in here, he may be in stage. I heard he had a sword in the garden. Under that coat, he may have another sword. And this thing could get bloody quickly. Are you all out there? And so in their minds... They feel like, wait a minute, okay, we've we got to get to the end of this because he's a religious political figure, and, and so the doctrine of Jesus is putting the fragile relationship between Rome and Jerusalem at risk, and they're thinking, Peter, since you're one of them, man, this thing could go up. And so they begin to ask him, you're one of his disciples. That's what John said. John said a question, are you one of his disciples? Luke records it emphatically. One of them said, this man is or was with them. Peter could be that insurrectionist. Perhaps he's a zealot. In their minds, he's a part of a plot to attack the hearing that's scheduled for tomorrow. I don't know. The possible reality is, as Peter, in his mind, though, is still waiting for divine intervention messianically. So we have the people 
They think he's an insurrectionist. But Peter had disappointment in the garden, didn't he? Are you out there? Stay with me because we're going to tie. We're going to start. We're going to fold it and bring it to you in a moment. In just a moment of time. But there's still something in Peter. He's, he suffered disappointment when Jesus didn't defend himself and reproved him for defending him. But he has some measure of a love for Jesus that he says, despite that, I've got I've to still follow this situation. And he, and he gets access to what's going on in the courtyard. But I have to believe that in, in Peter's mind, he is still convinced that Jesus is going to fight both Rome and distorted Judaism. And yet he's twisted up on the inside because things aren't happening the way he thinks that they should. Rather than Jesus casting off the soldiers and swords like Samson previously mentioned, now he's chained, bound, escorted by soldiers and servants. He knows within himself that the man who healed the sick and cast out devils and raised the dead and walked on water and stilled the raging storm has the power to conquer Rome. So inside he's conflicted. And this brings me to point number one of my three-point sermon. And everybody said amen. Number one, the enemy will sift through your failed expectations or your foiled expectations. He will. The enemy will use the disappointment that you have when your expectation of God does not work out the way you thought it would. Peter's expectation, as I've been sharing since I started this message, was that this is the revolution that we all hope for. And when that doesn't take place, immediately the enemy gets a hold of that in Peter and begins to sift him as wheat. Did you know disappointment to expectations has caused many of our faiths to begin to falter? Many of us, when God doesn't meet our expectation, doesn't deliver the way we think that he should. I've personally, in the latter couple of years, I'm going to be honest. I wrote it this way, and I asked myself the question, when God doesn't meet our expectation, I thought about that. Maybe, maybe not deliverance from an army, and then I had to put parentheses, and I said, but maybe. Because I've struggled for a couple of years asking this question, why do the heathen have to rule over us? I'm, I'm almost like Peter. I'm like, why? Why do we have pagans that rule over us in America? And, and I get all twisted up when I think about it. I mean, when people are trying to lecture me that can't tell me what is a man or a woman. When, when people try, that, that are trying to lecture me and trying to tell me that a man can have a baby. And yet they're elevated to a position of authority. I'm struggling and sometimes I walk around almost like Peter. I'm just like, man, let's let this thing go down. But in doing so, the adversary can get a stronghold. Just like he did with Peter. And we'll see that continue here in just a moment. You say, well, Pastor, well, I'm not quite as volatile as you. I thank God. Because there's enough of us running around. But let me say this. But what about when a loved one dies from a sickness that you prayed that God would heal? What about when job loss came? Or what about when you just knew you were going to be the one promoted? And the person that was chosen to be in the position that you sought for is the person that got on your nerves the most. All right, I'm feeling a lot of amens on that. Let me tell you, the enemy can come in with that disappointment. And he can begin to sift you. 
You say sift, let me show you what sift means in the original language, in the strong coordinates. It means an inward agitation to try one's faith to the verge of overthrow. Remember, the enemy's not concerned about your convenience and your comfort. But it's your calling and your convictions. It's about your commitment to Christ. And if he can take something in the natural and get a stronghold inside of you, even through disappointment. Disappointment's a real issue that we often deal with. We have an expectation. God, you've got to do this. God, you've got to do this. God, you've got to meet this need. And when that doesn't happen, oftentimes there is a cloud. Are you out there? Of uncertainty. And the adversary can enter in in the cloud and begin to sift us. That word sift again, after the wheat in the days of the Bible, let me take a few moments into it, was harvested. It was tied in sheaves and bundles. It was taken to a threshing floor. And there on the threshing floor, it was either beaten or trotted upon by an animal that pulled a threshing instrument. It was then winnowed in the air, because it was often done late in the afternoon, just as a cool breeze would blow on the side of a hill, and it would allow the wind to begin to carry off additional shaft. But with that, though, there were some farmers who would sift it. If you Google search it, you can find pictures of what it would look like, uh, the sieve that was used, that where the, 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 the grain would then finally be taken, and it would be tossed up in the air so that there would be a shaking and an agitation to remove the chaff or the rock or other debris to produce the full fruit of the, of, the, of the harvester of the wheat. And so Jesus uses that analogy when he looked at Peter when he's in the upper room and he said, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. He's going to toss you, turn you, flip you upside down. And he has an intent to destroy you. The intent of Satan is not to purify. Let me just go ahead and tell you that. Satan has an intent. His intent is to destroy. He will sift, agitate uh, to the point of overthrow. Fear, frustration, disappointment, disillusionment, stress, a sense of loss or hurt, tossed. Last week we talked about Paul tossed in the sea. How about Peter in the sieve? But then we also know we have a promise. We're going to get to that promise. That promise was is that Jesus said, but in the middle of all that, I want you to know I have prayed for you. That your faith will not fail. Come on somebody. Isn't that powerful? I'll talk about that again in just a moment. But I caught this as I studied this. He didn't say to Peter. He said I'm praying for you. He said I've already prayed for you. I've already prayed for you. And so with this. His prayer wasn't to prevent Peter from being sifted. Rather than while he was sifted. His faith would not fail. I know the natural tendency. The natural tendency is this. None of us want to be tested. None of us want to be tempted. None of us want to be sifted. But here's point number two of my three-point sermon. Number two, God will use the sifting to to prove the sincerity of your faith. you got to know this. We don't teach it in the Word of Faith movement because everything that comes against us, we typically rebuke and reprove and try to pull down. And I know we have authority over unclean spirits, and I know we can cast out devils and drive away and pull down strongholds. But in the midst of all that, God will allow the tempter to tempt to prove the sincerity of your faith. Did you know in the book of Judges, when God was speaking to ancient Israel, notice what he said to them. Listen, I didn't give them the text. I'm going to read one verse. In Judges 2, verse 22, God told ancient Israel about the nations that were left in the land. He said, through them, I will prove Israel whether they will keep my way or not. 
And so I want you to know today, I want you to know that the adversary, the adversary from his intent, his intent is to steal, kill, and to destroy. But God allows the enemy to sift for the purpose to proving the authenticity of our faith. Because the environment that Peter was in that night, that wasn't the last time that he was going to be environment, be in an environment where he was going to have to be able to withstand and overcome. Are y'all out there today? And so there was a moment in his life when Peter said, Satan has desired to have you. I told you last week when we looked at, Pete, at Paul in the ocean, in the Mediterranean, and you know, I mean, if there was a moment where I struggled a little bit with it at first, because I, again, I think that God's always concerned about my comfort and convenience. And I know I'm the only one that's up here that way. But I, when I saw that God sent an angel to speak to Paul, y'all remember that? And I talked about it, it was probably point number 28. <laughs> for visitors there, they're like, oh my God, does this pastor really? And I say, oh my God, I don't mean it in a slang way. I mean, in talk, does he really preach 30-point sermons? Well, I did last week, but I won't this week. But I thought about that, and I said, if he could have sent an angel, he could have stopped the storm. Does that make sense? Uh, you, you don't want to admit that, but you think that too. You think that, but why am I having to do this? Why am I having to go through this? Why am I dealing with this health crisis right now? Why is there trauma in my home? Why are my teenagers not listening to me? Are you hearing me today? Why am I having to take care of my loved ones or my, 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 my mother or father who's maybe in a really difficult situation and nobody else is doing it, but I'm the one that the burdens fall on? We all ask ourselves those hard questions, and we find ourselves a little bit frustrated. And the enemy wants to come in, and he wants to sift our faith through, our agitation, through agitation and difficulty. And so the enemy's perspective is to destroy, but God is allowing it to prove Peter's faith. The enemy doesn't see himself as one to prove Peter's faith, rather to destroy it. And I thought about this, and you see a lot of this sifting continue. You say, well, for, how, how, how was Peter sifted? Let me take you to a few more of these things, and I'll bring you to the third point and close here in just a few minutes. But I want you to see this. Are y'all out there with me tonight or today? I, I, we got to connect because we got to get there. There's a, there's a, we're going to close on a powerful moment, but we got to get there here in just a moment. And that is, I, I just was trying to, I was trying to identify with Peter, and I was trying to find this sifting, and I was trying to because if I can see Peter going through the sifting and tossing and turning, and the enemy trying to agitate his faith to the point of overthrow, then maybe I can recognize when I'm being sifted. Isn't that the intent? To be able to recognize, did you know, first of all, that violent defense of Jesus? That was a sifting of the adversary. The enemy moved Peter to act in the flesh in defense of Christ. Because, listen to this, I want to say this. Because if, if listen, Peter acted in the flesh, he will establish a moment that he can always act on the flesh in the favor of God. And here's another thing that we have to think about. Did you know what? I, I, I want to say this. God does not need us to defend him. Peter thought he was the defender of Jesus. He's got it totally wrong. Jesus is our defender. God doesn't need you to defend him. Men, did you know in our culture today, many will defend God but won't worship him? I, I believe we can contend for the faith, yes, but defend the faith or defend God, I, I don't know. I don't know if God needs us to do that. Second, the sheep were scattered that night. In the midst of trial, you know what happens to the Christian in America many times? We just run. 
We alienate ourselves from other fellowship and from God. The disciples were, that Jesus was smitten, and they all forsook and fled. Temptation, trial, pressure, again, failed expectations. We scatter. We run from his call. We run from his, pur- from his purpose in our life, just like Peter. Then we can follow it a little bit farther. We see the agitation in Peter because here's something that you may have overlooked. It says that he followed Jesus from afar. And I said, man, wow, because there's a lot of people, a lot of professing Christians following Jesus from afar. (laughs) They're still concerned. They still have some measure of genuine faith, but their own sinful response to disappointment causes them to follow from afar. Did you know I am a tele-evangelist right now? Right? Because of Facebook or because of our ability to live stream. There are people sitting at home, and some are seated at home today because their health does not allow them to come. And we say, thank God that we have the means to be able to reach them and, to, and them to be a part of our, fe- our fellowship because they are a part of our fellowship. But did you know there are some that are seated at home today because they're following him from afar? Because the enemy came in, disappointment, disillusionment, things happened, and they still have a belief in Jesus but they just don't know that they can be right in the heat of the fray again. Are y'all hearing me today? When you follow Jesus from afar and your strength begins to wane, the tempter will come to you, just like he did with Peter. They begin to accuse him, you were with Jesus. Peter knows it, but it's not convenient to admit it. Have you ever been there? Hmm. It wasn't conven- you know, it's convenient to admit it, uh, you know, when it's being elevated to the point you might sit on the 12 tribes of, uh, judging the, the 12 tribes of Israel, but now... When you might be, you know, put in shackles and let out of here or set up uh, right beside uh, 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 Jesus, everything is shifting inside him. He's wavering. Why is he wavering? Because the enemy's sifting him, sifting him like wheat. And then there's another accusation a little bit farther. And he said, I am not the one you're looking for. And then that third accuser, though, that third accuser heard Peter speak in his Galilean accent. That Galilean, that little rougher tongue of the Galilean has revealed his true identity. He's not one of the pompous religious leaders of Jerusalem. He's got that Galilean accent. It's kind of like us. Have, have any of us, have you ever traveled up north? I remember the first time I traveled up north years ago. And I stopped to ask for directions. This was before Google and before Google Maps and all those things. Stopped to ask for direction. And when I asked for a direction, the response of the cashier at the, uh, the little convenience store said, you have to not be from around here. You must be from the south. Obviously, I didn't know it but they, in that sense of my accent, but they did. And Peter's accent is revealing his identity. And the tempting is so great and frustration is so great that now Peter begins to curse and to swear. I'm telling you, the enemy can take you to a place. Are you hearing me today? Sifting and pressure and frustration. And God, why? Why is it not happening the way that I expected it to? And that frustration has reached a melting point, And now Peter just loses it. He loses it. That's not a sanctified tongue that he's speaking in. He's cursing and swearing. And that sifting is exposing the presence of, ch- of chaff and debris in his life. His heart is not fully clean. And I want you to know at this moment, you can be overwhelmed in anger, sorrow, frustration. People fight against God every day. The heart is hardened by deceit. Peter is at risk. 
He could have quickly moved away from a follower of Christ to opposing Christ because unbelief can come in that fast. Are y'all hearing me today? Luke records something that others chose not to, and I want to kind of mention that to you here as I kind of begin to transition because there's something we've got to really emphasize here in just a moment before I get to number to that third point. Luke records that when that third denial takes place, that the rooster crows. So you got to try to, can y'all see this with me for a moment? So Jesus is on trial in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, and there's a courtyard area. And if you follow the narrative, they often move Jesus from there, and he's held in a particular place for a while, and then he ends up back in Pilate's judgment hall. But somewhere along, it seems as is, as Peter, when, he, when he's outside, he's warming himself by the fire, and when he's accused of, by his Galilean accent of being a follower of Christ, and when that happens, and he's just, man, this is enough. The enemy's got a stronghold. He begins to curse and swear. I don't even know the man. It seems as if they had moved Jesus close enough that just as he is coming off that last curse word off of his tongue, his eyes turn, and the eyes of Jesus are looking right at him. Now, I want you to know today the eyes of Jesus are on you today, too. And his eyes are on me. But I ask myself, how many of you know with the eyes you can speak? Come on, somebody. With the eyes you could speak. And so I wondered, I said, was it a searing look that he looked at Peter almost like, come on, every parent has had that look. We got all, a lot of looks. I had that, you know, I used to be the, I was the snap at the fingertip. You know, right there, I could snap. I don't even snap loud, but I'm telling you, my kids could pick it up in a heavy room right here. And there's that look. Was it a searing look that he gave to Peter that moment? I told you, Peter. I told you. I'm so frustrated with you right now. Or was it a look of compassion, of empathy? Peter, it's just like I told you. Just like I wonder what was in the eyes of God and the voice of God when he was in the garden long years ago. And he said, Adam, the way you read the text in Genesis, Adam, where are you? I told you not to eat of the tree. Or was it like, Adam, what have you done? What have you done? Or was it a look in the eyes of Jesus of one of sorrow? And he was like, Peter, why have you? I thought you loved me. You just denied that you don't even know me. Was it that look? I don't know. I know his eyes have been on me before. Because I've failed and Satan has sifted me like wheat in the past. Peter's heart is smitten. And while he thinks on these things, the Spirit of God comes over Peter. And he runs out and he weeps bitterly. I'm heading towards my close. Now you can contrast Peter and Judas. Peter goes and he weeps his way to repentance. Judas is overwhelmed in sorrow and abandons all faith. That's what could have happened to Peter. What made the difference? What made the difference? Can I tell you what made the difference today? It's because when that rooster crowed, the Bible says he remembered the word that was spoken to him by Jesus. Remember what he had said? Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. But that's not the only thing that he said. Jesus had told Peter, he said, but Peter... He said, I want you to know, I want you to know, you're going to deny that you even know me, but I've prayed for you. 
Hallelujah, I feel Jesus on that right there. But he said, I want you to know that I prayed for you, Peter. And in the height of your temptation, your faith is going to be stretched. It's going to be strained. It's going to be pulled. It's going to be agitated. It's going to be tossed. And a thousand emotions are going to be on the inside of you. But I want you to know your faith is not going to fail. And when you are, King James English says, converted. And when you are turned back, he says, as a matter of fact, I'm going to use you to strengthen your other brothers. So point number three is this. The prayer of Jesus made the difference. The prayer of Jesus made the difference. The prayer of Jesus, perhaps not heard by human ears, not recorded by human hands, his intercession made the difference. Scripture records that Jesus right now ever lives to make intercession for his children. Did you know that the Bible says in Hebrews 2 that he is able to help those that will come to him who are tempted? And so what happened with Peter, it happens in our lives as well. He intercedes for us. And he silences the voice of the accuser and his prayer will make the difference in your life. I want you to know I believe in praying for one another, don't you? I believe in the value and the purpose of corporate worship because we come together to strengthen one another. And to hold one another up because we're not all at seasons in our life where everything, in the words of my deceased mom, hunky-dory. We're at seasons of trial, being sifted like wheat, where we're wrestling with things that nobody even knows that are going on on the side of us. And it takes God using someone else under the power and the anointing of the Spirit of God to pray and intercede for us so that our faith, though it is agitated, tossed, but it's not going to fail. I've told this story, and I'm going to tell it as I'm closing today, when this became more real to me than at any other time in my life. Every one of us have been sifted before at certain times in our life, tried and tossed. Now, I remember long years ago, and this came to my thoughts, and I've shared this a few times over the years, but we have a new church today from what we had over the years. And many years ago, I had the opportunity when I was in the Air Force in 1991 to go TDY, temporary duty in the United States Air Force, from Little Rock Air Force Base to Milden Hall, England. And I'd never been out of the country, and it was something I was looking forward to. Sherry and I had two children, Ashley and Amber. I think I'm an E-4 in the military at that particular time. And so, and I'm, me and Sherry and I are very active in ministry uh, at MacArthur Assembly of God, but I'm still in the military. And so, so, so I'm kind of doing both ministry, military, all of that, but an opportunity to see England. I was excited about that, and so it was very, it, it was hot. Oh, my gosh, it was 100 degrees the day that we left out of Little Rock Air Force Base, somewhere in August at that time. And, uh, man, I tell you what, though, this is the way my heart was. We landed in Maryland to refuel before we began to journey across the Atlantic, and I was missing my wife and two babies so bad. If I could have walked back from Maryland, if they'd have said, you can go home now, I'd have just right there. And I don't know if that was part of the things that happened. Well, I got over there and uh, in England, and so I was a, a part of a supply. And I was assigned to a supply uh, warehouse on the backside of the flight line. And I was assigned to work at night. And I was working at night, and I was working totally by myself. Nobody was there. And I'd only get one or two orders a night, so I just had very little interaction. Um, I, I would tuck a pillow in my duffel bag with me and uh, so that they thought that no one knew what I had. And so in the little room I was, I could just lock the door until the phone rang. And I was protecting y'all with that pillow. So don't tell President Biden, the commander-in-chief, what I was doing way back years ago. 
But, but something began to happen during that time period. That isolation began to weigh on me. And, 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 and I had no interaction with church folk. I had no fellowships that I could attend. There was not a people group that I could worship with. And, and as I, I was reading a lot of scripture, I'm telling you, the enemy can twist your mind while you're reading the word. I was devouring the word, but at the same time, thoughts began to come in. The loneliness that I began to feel, I began to suffer depression. And I'm not, as y'all know, I live life with a smile most of the time, except for when Mississippi State's whipping up on the Razorbacks, JoJo. But I, I was live life with a smile, but I mean, I'm talking a depression. I didn't know about depression. I'd never experienced depression. And so I wake up in the night, and I'm crying, and I'm sobbing, and I'm fearful for my family, and I'm fearful for my soul. And I begin to question things in the Word of God. I, I would read the accounts. I was really devouring the Gospels. And I, I, let me give you an example of this. We, we know the story of, of the, the demoniac of the Gadarenes. And so if you read that in one Gospel writer, he mentions one man possessed by a devil. I read it in another other place and there's two possessed by a devil and so then I'm sitting there by myself trying to figure this out and saying the word is it's not matching it doesn't matter it's it's not together it's not in agreement with one another it's it's in error I'm, I'm I, the thoughts are in my mind the word of God is in error I've since learned this it's just two people telling the same story but through different lens right me and Sherry might come over to your house and you're telling somebody about it later and say well pastor stop by but you might say to someone else and say, oh, Pastor and Sister Sherry stopped by. So one told it one way and one told it the other, but I didn't know that. I had no way of Google searching that and getting information. I had nobody. And I'm telling you, those little things began to get inside of me, and my faith is faltering. My call, my convictions, preaching, how can I preach a word that I don't know if I believe anymore? And I'm, I'm wavering unlike any other time. I'm a young man isolated from fellowship, my heart is heavy. I can't tell you the heaviness of it. There's only one person that knows the heaviness of it, and that's Jesus, the one that prayed for me. Because I'm telling you, in that moment, I, I, I was questioning life. I was questioning heaven. I was questioning, you know, communion with God, fellowship, everything. Everything, every doubt and fear that can run through your mind was running through the mind of a young preacher. And I had to make arrangements. And I said, I'm going to call Pastor Burton. But in 1991, you didn't pick up your cell phone and call Pastor Burton. I had to make arrangements at a certain time to call him where he would be seated by, in his office or at home by a rotary dial phone to answer it. And for all you young adults here today, that there were times when phones were hid on, held on the wall or on a desk in your home that had a rotary dial. So I had to put that together, and then I had to find a place to call him. And you know where I called him from? I, there was a phone booth there on the base that was metallic red and glass plated. And for his time and my time to coincide, it was night time for me. Does anybody know about England? It rains a lot and it's very misty. It's a dark, misty night. I leave the barracks and I walk to the phone booth and I'm in the phone booth. I can feel all that anxiety. I'm watching over my shoulder like Jack the Ripper is going to pop out at any time. It's that, what's what the moment was inside of me. And I dial the number. Pastor Burton was expecting it. He answers the phone. And he says, hey, buddy, how you doing? And from that moment, I said, Pastor Burton, I'm not doing real well. I said, 
I'm struggling unlike anything I've ever known. I'm honest. I'm just pouring my soul out to him. And I want you to know immediately, he didn't know what I was calling him about. The Spirit of God fell on his heart in his home in Jacksonville, Arkansas. And he began to prophesy. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. And through his voice, he begins to speak to me. He said, Lee, you're in an area where there are over 100,000 confirmed witches and warlocks, demonic strongholds and darkness in the area. It's a satanic scheme. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he began to pray, and he began to bind devils and demons and pull strongholds down and encourage me in my faith and encourage me in the Word of God. And, and so for whatever, it cost me $20 to make that phone call. Now, $20 was a lot of money to me at that particular time. That would be the equivalent in Biden economy of about $2,000. But it was well worth every penny. But I can't say I was instantly delivered. But I walked away with something that I didn't possess when I entered in. I walked away with hope. Because, let me tell you this, I could hear the voice of the Son of God in His voice. And I want you to know today... I believe in my heart that Satan is sifting some in our congregation as Daryl joins me on, or Daryl's on the platform with me today. And I came along to tell you today, the prayer of Jesus made the difference. The prayer of Jesus made the difference for Peter, and Jesus was using my pastor to pray for me so that when I was being sifted, my faith would not fail. It was stretched, it was strained. I questioned, I wondered, I couldn't find the presence of God, but I stayed true to the things that I knew to believe in, and over a period of time, I was able to go back, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I was able to come in and begin to pull strongholds down. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I began to take this thought that entered into my mind. I could then begin to discern it by the Word of God and pull it down, and after several weeks, and even about two months and when I arrived back in the United States, I finally found myself, my mind was clear. My faith was strengthened and intact. And I would be able to strengthen the brethren, just like Peter. We're going to put a passage of Scripture to close up here today. Peter writes an epistle, two epistles later in his life. And I want you to see his words up there. I believe it's in 1 Peter chapter number 1, verses 5 through 9. Peter's writing these words. And he's writing to us through the first century church. He's writing to you today. You're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 6 verse. Wherein you greatly rejoice. Though now for a season, if need be. I wonder what's in his mind as he begins to write these last few words. You are in heaviness through many-fold temptations. Verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, it will be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Did you notice Peter didn't pray for you to be delivered from your situation? But he prayed for you to be aware that you're being tried as of by fire. Verses 8 and 9. Whom having not seen you love, though you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable 
and full of glory, ninth verse, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. I have to believe that when the apostle writes those words, he can't help but remember a fateful night. Come on, somebody. When his arrogance was going to be confronted. When his expectation was not going to be met. And when everything he knew and everything he hoped for turned upside down overnight. The way he viewed Jesus was being changed. He had viewed him as a messianic figure to deliver the people from Rome. And God was going to reshift and rechange the way he viewed Jesus till he could see him as the shepherd and the bishop of your soul. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. I thought about that this morning in my prayer time. And the emotion that I felt Almost 30 years ago. 30 years ago. No. 1991, I guess 31 years ago. The emotion that I felt at that moment when a man of God prayed over me as I stood in a phone booth on a dark night. Nobody cared. Cars are going by. The military did its work. We were flying. They were doing mission. Nobody cared that there's a, a young preacher in a phone booth and his faith is hanging in the balance. But there was one who cared. And he ever lives to intercede for you and I. And he couldn't be there in the person to pray for me. But my pastor, once he discerned my need, the Spirit of God came on him. And the anointing, that anointing that David fought Goliath with. Come on, somebody. That anointing that Jesus had when he cast out devils and stilled the storm. The anointing that Peter knew could stop Rome, but he chose not to. But on that night, that anointing began to pull strongholds down in the heart and the mind of a pastor, a young man. And I just felt in my heart that we should come to this day today. And I should bring a word to our church family. If you felt like you've been sifted, somebody's praying for you. Jesus is interceding for you through the voice of someone else. Whether it be a pastor or a friend, a spouse or a loved one, telling you, don't give up. Come on, somebody. Your faith is not going to fail. Come on. I've learned over the years, I don't always pray for God to deliver everybody out of every situation. I know the evangelist comes through, and that's how he wants to teach us, Jace, that, yeah, the, we're going to be delivered from there. No, I pray with the shepherd's heart. God, keep them. Keep them. Let their faith not fail, because there's sometimes God's doing some things beyond just you being delivered immediately from that situation. Sometimes God's got a greater purpose. And so I came along to tell you today, we're here to pray for you today and to pray with you. I think church should be a place where not only do we worship and offer the sacrifice of praise, but I think it also should be a place where we can be vulnerable in. 
You know what, you know what caused me to be sifted? It's because I was alienated from the faith. I wasn't with other people. And in my loneliness, the enemy came in. Now, I want you to know today, don't let. You can be here and still be lonely. You can be in a public place and still just not feel connected. Today, you got to let us. Our heads are bowed and our eyes closed. Spirit of the Lord, I don't know. Surely, it's, I, know it's, I didn't even bring my phone up here. I don't know what time it is. Matters not. If we can't do it right, let's don't do it at all. Come on, somebody. If I can't give an altar call today to somebody that would be transparent and be honest and say, Pastor, when you use words like agitated or disappointed or sifted, and I, I knew right, I knew you were talking to me today because that's right where I'm at. I just, I don't know if I'm going to be delivered from the situation today, Pastor, but I just need I just need to know that I'm going to make it through it. I tell you what, I believe through the prayers of this church family, myself and pastors and other leaders and the fellowship, I believe you're going to make it. Peter wrote <laughs> the epistle. There's going to be a moment it's going to be turned to glory. Right now it's many-fold heaviness, many, heavy, many moments of heaviness. But you know it's going to turn to glory. It's going to turn to glory. He's going to come. His spirit's going to come. You're going to make it through it. And when you make it through it, I'm going to use you to strengthen someone else. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, that's me. That's me, Pastor Brown. I'm going to be courageous and enough, uh, enough in a moment to come forward so that you can pray with me today that my faith will not fail. Because I'm in a trial. I'm going to be honest. I'm in a trial. If that's you, slip your hand up today. Slip your hand up today. I'm not just trying to fill an altar with numbers. My heart is for you. I've been there. I've been there. You didn't even know me at that time. I know the emotion that I felt. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can go there in my mind and feel it all over again. Church family, you need somebody to pray with you today. I'm going to ask everyone to stand. And I'm going to ask the people that are courageous enough to raise their hand to come forward. And we're going to pray with you today. Pastor, I'm standing out. I, was in, I know I was hidden in the phone booth, but I'm telling you, it didn't make no difference. I would, have, I, would have, I would have walked to London to have gotten that prayer. The prayer of faith. This is the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith can save the sick, yes. The prayer of faith can strengthen your faith so that you can endure what you're going through. A church family, I, I, I value our church family. I value. I think that we ought to come and rally to one another a little bit today. And I'm going to come by and I'm going to put anointing oil on every person. And I'm going to join my faith with theirs. And, and I just want to ask you today, I just... I just think we should support one another in prayer. God might use you. You might be the word. You might be what Pastor Burton or who Pastor Burton was to me that day. It might be one of us pastors that has AG on our shirt, but it may not be. It may be that someone else has an anointed word, and you go and you pray over them. And in that moment of time, your prayer makes the difference. Jesus' prayer made the difference. 
We're going to pray for you today, and I'm going to pray very specifically. I'm going to pray a closing prayer, and I'll let people be dismissed in love. But those of you that stay, please just stay in an atmosphere of worship. Stay in an atmosphere of worship. Undergird one another. We're going to pray for men and women. You know what our prayer is going to be today, church family? That their faith will not fail. That's a, I don't even know that's a biblical prayer in there. Their faith will not fail. That's how we're going to pray for them today. I may not necessarily pray, God, deliver you from. I may say, God, keep them in. Keep them in the midst of it, God. Preserve them and protect them. Father of heaven, I've come to the end of my sermon, my preaching time. God, in the name of Jesus, I've come to the end. I've said all I wanted to say, what I believe you put on my heart to say. I brought the people to a text, Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, and I've reminded them that if Satan could sift Simon, then he can sift them. And that, God, you will often use that as a means to prove the sincerity of our faith. We're tested and tried, though as by fire. And as we are converted or turned back from this season of trial, we then strengthen our brothers. We strengthen our sisters in Christ. God, today, would you put an anointing on us today? The anointing that I experienced long years ago when Pastor Burton prayed for me. I pray for an anointing like that, and I pray for many to possess that anointing. But today, God, as we minister and we minister to one another in love, let the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ to be among us today. In the name of Jesus. I bless the people. Every that person that's come to hear the word of God today, I hope many of them will come back tonight for a time of worship and communion. Lord, we love you and we're so grateful for your presence in this room. In Jesus' name and all God's children said amen and amen. Church family, I hope that we don't have anybody.